Hi, welcome to Restoration Church, where we are up to our next in a series called People of the End. We've been talking about those seemingly opposite ideas that show up in our scripture. Um, Trevor kicked us off talking about how we can see the scripture as both God's inerrant word and this beautiful piece of literature that's cited all over the world. Um, Then we talked about truth and grace. Uh, Joel brought to us uh, the idea that we need to pray without ceasing, but also God knows what we have need of. So why pray? And so we talked through that. And then David uh, talked about the sovereignty of God and man's ability to make meaningful choices. And how do those two play together? And then today we're going to bring to you this this idea of that we are citizens of both earth and citizens of heaven. And sometimes those worlds collide. But I think we can live in this knowledge of the tension. Now, there's a couple of sayings that come to mind right away when you think of this. And these aren't necessarily scriptural, but there are things you hear all the time. We are to be in the world and not of it, we tell, you know, people at church. And another one is, she's so heavenly minded. She's no earthly good. Now, that was said a lot when I was a kid. And maybe you've heard those. And they're kind of the idea of what we're going to talk about they're kind of truisms. So our text today is John 17, 15 through 19. And let me set you up. Jesus is praying for his disciples before he's crucified. John 17, 15 through 19. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he has obviously written something talking, telling them not to associate with sexually immoral persons. And so here he kind of makes a little bit of a a moderation to what he originally said. And here's what he says. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. So we have in these verses this sense of in the world, this is the world that we live in. We can't necessarily live out of it. And yet we don't belong to it. And it's a bit of a, of a tightrope sometimes. Now, before I get started, our story is in Daniel 1 and 2. But before I get started, I want to bring up something that I, I heard many years ago that has helped me a lot. You see, when we're looking at scripture, we're looking at uh, sometimes a description of what happened to people in the Bible. And then there's other times, especially when God is involved and he intersects with us, or when we look and see what Jesus is doing, those are prescriptive. Those are what we need to do. Now, I was kind of raised with this idea that every single thing in the scripture is is some sort of like there's a lesson in it for me. And yes, it is for my good. But sometimes... It's just a story of what happened. And so we look for where God shows up. We look for those 
supernatural intersections. So as I share this story of Daniel, I ask you to pay attention to these three things. Where do you see Daniel functioning as a citizen of earth? Where is he grounded firmly here on this earth? How is he living right here? And number two, where do you see Daniel functioning as a citizen of heaven? Where is his mind on things above? And then finally, where does God intersect with the people in this story? So we'll stop a few times along the way and just kind of let you get your bearings around those three questions. And I'm going to summarize, going to paraphrase, but you can follow along with me in Daniel 1. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took it over. And the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. And so there were vessels in the temple, and King Nebuchadnezzar brought those to his land, the land of Shinar, the Bible says, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods, little g. Now, his, he was set up in Babylon. Now, Babylon was the scene of the Garden of Eden, most people believe. It was also the scene of Tower of Babel. The Hebrew word for Babel is Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar had set about to repair this Tower of Babel and finish it as an offering to his God. In fact, they found some writings on little cylinders that were embedded in some ruins in this area that most attribute to being the original site of the Tower of Babel. If if you don't know the story, go back and look that up in Genesis. But it's it's when people came together and were trying to build something that would go to the heavens. And God dispersed it and he confused their language, it says, so that they didn't try to come and, and be equal to him. So here's what this writing said, and I think this is worth listening to. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. My great lord, little R, has established me in strength and has urged me to repair his buildings. The tower of Babylon I have made and finished. The tower of Borsippa. Now, Borsippa means tongue tower, interestingly enough. Now, this is long after the original tower of Babel. But anyway, the tower of Borsippa had been built by a former king and he had completed 42 cubits, but he did not finish its head from the lapse of time. It had become ruined and the rain and the wet had penetrated into the brickwork and the casing of burnt brick had bulged out and Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, my great lord, inclined my heart to repair the building, and I did not change its site, nor did I destroy its foundation platform. But in a fortunate month, and upon an auspicious day, I undertook the rebuilding. I set my hand to build it up and to finish its summit, and as it had been in ancient times, so I built up its structure. So here we have King Nebuchadnezzar. He's gone taking Judah captive. He's he's brought the implements from the temple back to his his temple in the treasury of his gods and he has rebuilt the tower of Babel as a worship to the god Marduk. So verse 3, then the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility. Now they were looking for young men from Judah, young men who would have already come from royalty, had already had much education and training and they were looking specifically for 
men, according to scripture, that had no physical defect. They were handsome. They would have been taught in all kinds of wisdom. They were quick to learn. They were discerning, competent. And the king had in mind that they would be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans of, for three years so that they could basically serve in his court. So he takes the best of the best. Now, they're still teenagers, but they're able to be formed into the Chaldean way is what was the thought. The king even would share his food and his wine. They would eat like kings. And among these young Judah men was Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar, Hananiah or Shadrach, Mishael or Meshach, and Azariah or Abednego. You may have heard the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, which we won't get to today, but that is the same group of men. So verse 8, one of my favorite verses of this passage, listen to this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to, to defile himself. But Daniel resolved. That's such a... A powerful verse there. And then we go on to nine. So Daniel resolves, verse nine says, Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. So Daniel basically goes to this guard and he says, Hey, look, I know you're in charge of me. Just give us 10 days of none of the food that you want us to eat. We'll just eat vegetables and water. And then you can compare us to the other youth. And you make the call. Now, the guard's a little nervous. He's like, look, my head's on the line here. My job's on the line. My life is probably on the line, knowing King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, temper. And he's a little hesitant. But remember, God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion. And so he, he goes, okay, cool. Now, henceforth, if you haven't been heard this before it's been around the church language for a long time they call it the daniel diet and a lot of times when people do fasting and prayer they'll do a daniel fast and what this is what they refer to is this vegetables and and water to drink so anyway we go on to our story to these four young men god gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom and daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. And at the end of the three years, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar for a sort of Mr. Babylon pageant, if you must. And the king spoke with them and he asked them questions. And among everyone, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and therefore they were selected for the king's court. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Which brings us to this important distinction between wisdom and magic. And they're often put together in this story. You think about Pharaoh's magicians, uh, even the magi that came to visit the baby Jesus. But let's just talk for a moment, take just a little side step here. Wisdom is the ability to contemplate and act and interpret what's going on around you. And you use knowledge and you use your experience and your understanding and your common sense and, and the insight that you have. Some people have more insight than others. So wisdom is based on how you interpret the things you see 
that you learn and you understand. And basically what you're doing with wisdom as a Christian, you're adapting your soul to God's desires. So you're saying, God, show me how to interpret everything that's going around me, going on around me, and let me do it so that it fits within who you are and what you desire. Now, magic, on the other hand, is based on this idea of creating and controlling the things around you. So basically what you're trying to do with magic is adapt reality to your desires. Do you see how different that is? Wisdom, we adapt our soul or our reality to God's desires. And magic, we adapt reality to our desires. And that, my friend, is a deal with the devil, I promise. So, rest area here. Where did you see Daniel functioning as a citizen of earth? Where was he grounded and having to live within the context God had placed him? And where did you see him functioning with his head basically in the clouds with God? Where he saw things in ways that weren't necessarily earthbound. And then where did you see God intersect with the people in this story? Where did you hear the language of God allowing or God um, showing up, God letting things happen or giving people skills or gifts, right? Okay, let's move on to chapter 2. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed some crazy dreams and they messed with his sleep and his mood. And so the king commanded that his magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers come to court to tell the king his dreams. He summoned them. And when they came in and they stood before him, he says, I have had such a crazy dream and I have got to tell someone, I've got to have someone tell me what it means so I can get some sleep again. Well, they say to the king, oh, king, live forever. Tell us your dream and we will interpret it for you. And here's what the king says. You know what? I'll tell you what. Since you are all so wise, you tell me the dream and its interpretation or you will be torn limb from limb and I will destroy your families too. No pressure. But here's the thing. If you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, I will shower you with gifts and rewards and great honor. And go. Well, they try it again. Uh, Oh, king, please, you tell us about the dream and then we can give its interpretation. And the king's like, hey, you're stalling here. And I remind you of my ultimatum. Now tell me my dream. Well, the magicians and sorcerers are like, hey, this is not fair. This is a mission impossible. No one on earth can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter. This thing that you are asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't seem to be available at the moment. Well, the king flies into this violent rage and he commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed, including Daniel and his friends. So the decree is issued and the wise men are about to be executed and the executioners out there looking for Daniel and company to execute them as well, to round them up. And verse 14, this is kind of like the understatement of the year. And then Daniel responds with prudence and discretion 
to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. Prudence and discretion would be the order of the day when talking to an executioner who's looking for you. So Daniel says to Arioch, what in the world is going on? Did I miss something? Why is this decree of the king so urgent? What's the hurry? What happened? So Arioch explains the matter to Daniel. And Daniel goes in and he requests that the king give him a chance to tell the king of his dream and interpret it. So Daniel goes home. And this is, he's like prayer huddle with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's like, look, it, our, our necks were on the line but I know God's going to show up, but I need your prayers. I need the support of the saints. Pray with me. And so they all prayed together. And that night, the Bible says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So before Daniel does anything else, now, if I was Daniel, I might've just been looking for Arioch real quick and in a hurry. But Daniel takes the time to bless the God of heaven in verse 20, now I'm, I'm reading this one in the New International Reader's Version because I kind of like the simplicity of it. But listen to this blessing. May God be praised forever and ever. He is wise and powerful. He changes times and seasons. He removes some kings from power and he causes other kings to rule. The wisdom of those who are wise comes from him. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding and he explains deep and hidden things. He knows what happens in the darkest places and where he is, everything is light. God of my people of long ago, I thank and praise you. You have given me wisdom and power and you have made known to me what we asked you for. You have shown us the king's dream. So Daniel goes to Arioch now and he says, stop, don't destroy anybody. I got this. So Arioch quickly brings Daniel before the king. And of course, he's trying to take credit. Look, I have found among the exiles from Judah, a man who can tell the king of his, the interpretation. Well, the king says to Daniel, are you actually able to tell me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answers, O king, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed were these. Now he starts out with this little side note. By the way, I'm not any wiser than anyone else, but this was revealed to me by God in order for you to know it. Do you see how God's getting the glory here? Amen. King Nebuchadnezzar, you looked up and saw a large statue standing in front of you. It was huge and it shone brightly and it terrified you. The head of the statue was made out of pure gold. Its chest and arms were made out of silver. Its stomach and thighs were made out of bronze. Its legs were made out of iron. And its feet were partly iron and partly baked clay. And while you were watching in this dream, a rock was cut out of a mountain, but human hands didn't do it. 
And this rock struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. And then the iron and clay were broken to pieces, as were the bronze, the silver, and the gold. Everything in this statue was broken to pieces. And these pieces became like straw on a threshing floor at harvest time. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became this huge mountain. It filled the whole earth. King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the greatest king of all. The God of heaven has given you authority and power. He has given you might and glory. God has put everyone under your control. God has also given you authority over the wild animals and the birds in the sky. It does not matter where they live. He has made you ruler over all of them. You are that head of gold. But after you, another kingdom will take over and it will not be as powerful as yours. And next, a third kingdom will rule over the whole earth. The bronze part of the statue stands for that kingdom. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom. It will be as strong as iron and iron breaks and smashes everything to pieces. And the fourth kingdom will crush and break all the others. You saw... O king, that the feet and toes were made out of iron and baked clay, and the fourth kingdom will be divided up, but it will have some of the strength of iron. The toes were partly iron and partly clay. It will be partly strong and partly weak, this fourth kingdom. And you saw the iron mixed with baked clay. It will be made all of all kinds of people. And this fourth kingdom... It won't hold together any more than iron mixes with clay. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom and it will never be destroyed. And no other nation will ever take it over. It will crush all those other kingdoms and it will bring them to an end, but it will last forever. That's what the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain means. Human hands didn't cut out the rock. It broke the statue to pieces. It smashed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has shown you what will take place in days to come. The dream is true. And you can trust the meaning of it that I have explained to you. Now we go on to know that this prophecy is fulfilled. The first four kingdoms have been identified as by most scholars as Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel already said in this passage that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And then Daniel in chapter 5 talks about Babylon falling to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And then Greece succeeds them, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And most scholars agree that the Iron Empire can only be Rome. Now, the opinions differ on this final fifth empire. And some have tried to identify various periods uh, in Europe's history. They claim that the feet uh, represent the divided remnants of Rome. Still, others believe it's yet to come. Interestingly enough, they I was doing some you know, searching and researching over this. And uh, I can't remember who did it, but they actually have erected this uh, statue, this statue that we're talking about in, in real, it's 36 foot tall and it has made its way around America. And I'm not quite sure, I couldn't quite find why, but it was just interesting how much it, it does look like all the other pictures of it.
Anyway, back to our story. So then King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face. He worships Daniel and he commands that a grain offering incense be offered to him. No matter how much Daniel told him that it was God who did all this, he could only see Daniel as the person worthy of that, couldn't he? But here's what he does say. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promotes Daniel. He gives him a great many gifts like he promised and makes him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. And he was chief over all the wise men of Babylon. So he becomes the wisest of the wise men. And he makes a request of the king that he would appoint his friends over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And he does that as well. And then he remained at the king's court. So let's circle up again at our rest area. Where do we see Daniel functioning as a citizen of earth in this second chapter? Where do we see Daniel functioning with his mind on the things of God that are seem to transcend this earth? And where do we see God intersecting with his people in this story? Now we're going to wrap up with some uh, application here because we too function as citizens of earth much like Daniel. Our feet are firmly planted here. We live according to our conscience. We live in context with the community that God has placed us in. And yet we are a peculiar people here among the earth. Because we also function as citizens of heaven. We live in discernment of eternal values that apply to our immediate context at times you know we though we are seated with Christ in heavenly places and we have you know been completed in God's eyes we still feel the effects of living here and sometimes these worlds seem to collide when we come to those places where our spirit is saying one thing and our flesh is saying another when we we live in a place that Our spirit is unsettled and uncomfortable with. We get into situations where the Holy Spirit within us is saying, ah, that's not right. That's not who you are. You know, we have this sometimes this mixed identity, right? This this human and flesh, this spirit and earth kind of collision that happens in our souls. And so here's where here's what we do with that. We look for where God intersects. Where is God showing up in your story? Where is God intersecting or showing up in your family, in your marriage, in your job, in our communities, even in politics? God shows up. And he helps make sense of this tension we have of being called to be on this earth. And yet our spirit is longing for heaven and the pureness and and the painlessness of that. You see, this intersection of heaven and earth is a beautiful place to live. God gave us this earth. It's a beautiful place. And I believe that the best of earth will be in heaven. And so we have to look for those things. And we have to hope for those things right now, knowing that God is here. And where God is, is light and beauty and truth and goodness. And it's right here. And yet it's okay to long for perfection. It's okay to long for a release at times from the hardness of living 
in a place where sometimes it feels so lonely to be looking for God. And I think we can be encouraged by Daniel when he blessed the Lord. I'm going to end here with this blessing and then I'm going to pray. Because this is our blessing to God. May God be praised forever and ever. He is wise and powerful. He changes times and seasons. He removes some kings from power and he causes other kings to rule. The wisdom of those who are wise comes from him. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. He explains deep and hidden things. He knows what happens in the darkest places and where he is. Everything is light. God of my people of long ago, I thank and praise you. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked you for. You have shown us the king's dream. Now, this was written by a teenager who was uprooted from everything he knew, from a life of privilege to a life of captivity. In a land far away where he had to learn the language and the customs. And he had no immediate hope of going home. And yet he could praise God. He could find God in this place. And that's our inspiration of how we live in the tension of of what is and what is not yet. So let's pray. Father God, you know us completely in our weaknesses, in our failings, in our need to be certain, our need to be right, our need to feel safe. And yet you love us and continually point us to living in the tension of the and. Because you, God, are the only place of certainty in the muddled world we operate within. As citizens of earth, we seek places of safety, both physically and emotionally. And as citizens of heaven, we run to you for guidance and protection. As citizens of earth, we seek to be heard. And as citizens of heaven, we listen for the voice of Jesus. As citizens of earth, we seek comfort. And as citizens of heaven, we embrace hardship for the sake of the gospel. As citizens of earth, we lean to our own understanding. And as citizens of heaven, we trust in the Lord with all our strength. As citizens of earth, we seek power and influence. And as citizens of heaven, we relinquish our desire to be in control. So teach us, Lord, to live in this tension as citizens of both heaven and earth, our feet planted firmly in the context of the world that you have placed us in, and our hearts and minds planted firmly in the context of eternity. In your name, amen.